This show is brought to you by Air Wallachs. Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and in this episode, we are talking trust, how banks have gained it and lost it, and how fintechs are trying to fill the trust gap. We're fortunate to have two of the best in the business today with our guests, Joe Miklas and Luke Latham. After a 26-year career at ANZ, including as head of global subsidiaries, Joe has since led a number of really interesting companies in the financial services and fintech space, helping them navigate a lot of tech and regulatory change. Now she serves on the boards of payment and loyalty platform Yonder Money and machine learning company Cortic AI, and she's an executive director of the RegTech Association. And to trade tales of dealing with big waves of change and helping grow businesses, we have Luke Latham, GM for Australia and New Zealand of multinational fintech Air Wallachs. Prior to Air Wallachs, Luke has had a long career in strategy and product management at firms including Microsoft, Groupon and Amazon, and most recently as COO at grocery delivery business Milkrun. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start with a recent Forrester Index report, which suggests that trust in banks in some markets in the Asia-Pacific is at an all-time low. I would think that would give fintechs and neobanks a red-hot shot at stealing bank customers. So, Luke, Joe, what are the key elements of trust when it comes to banks and financial services as you see them? By this, I mean things like transparency or likability. Right. Well, from my perspective, I think trust really defines in some ways a license to operate. And so it's quite a complex thing to track and measure, but but really worth organisations understanding how to build trust in their organisations. And it really does kind of come from lots of different areas. I think you mentioned the, the Forrester Index. I think they measure like a bunch of different areas. Transparency is really important. I have found making sure that you're reliable, that you're competent, you actually know what you're doing if you're in a face-to-face kind of advising type role. So these are all really, really important. The thing about trust is that it can also be a really strong mitigant, if you like, for disruption. So if things go wrong and you have a customer base that really trusts you, you're able to b- bounce back a lot quicker than if there is no trust in your organisation. So that kind of helps with sustained growth and, and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it's a really important uh, foundational element. That's a really good point about disruption and coming back from those stress or, or danger points. Luke, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think financial services with the advent of, of fintechs is kind of undertaken this transition from a traditional borderline utility-esque service to a tech-led customer experience anchored business model. And I think that has changed the perspective of new entrants into the sphere about how they can 
audit and respond to perceived customer trust. And uh, to the earlier point, I think trust is hard-earned but easily lost. And Mm -hmm. in my experience across a number of growth and particularly digitally-oriented businesses, a lot of trust is earned with customers in the way that you handle when things go wrong. And I think uh, traditional financial services providers, again, coming from their roots, haven't necessarily built the muscle for that level of proactivity, intent, and responsiveness uh, to the customer experience when things that may or may not be out in their direct control go wrong, but it's still their name against it. And so I think um, an opportunity in the new wave of financial services is to be extremely intentional about investing in that customer experience and take a level of authenticity, ownership, proactivity about putting your hand up when your service level does fall short and show a level of intent about getting it right. And that's really what entrenches uh, a customer relationship because they have faith that, well, with this level of responsibility, I'm confident that if things do go wrong, this is the firm that I want to partner with to navigate that complexity. Luke, do you think that practice and these sort of trust elements like transparency and competency, likability and so on, are culturally specific? How do you build that level of trust and maintain that trust when you have different cultures who may value different things? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And I think ultimately we need to separate the foundations of the service being provided and the interaction with the customer. And I think the the nuance or the cultural specific orientation probably needs to come into the way that there is a direct interaction with the customer. Obviously, if you're building a technology or a digital platform that spans across borders, a degree of localization in terms of experience and obviously language and the real basic foundational things of operating in multiple countries, including compliance and, and all the regulatory obligations are table stakes. But at the end of the day, the the voice or the cultural adjacency that the customer feels from the provider will come when they have a direct interaction with them. And so ensuring that you are building a business that is as diverse and ideally locally aligned to your customer base is really important. And that's why while Airwallex has invested in this global network of infrastructure, which was largely built out of our origin in Australia, we haven't hesitated to expand ourselves globally and put ourselves physically in the locations where we're serving our customers because that's the only way to to provide a truly localised service, to be provided by the people who are living there and experiencing it with you in the regions where you operate. And so we know our customers, being businesses, appreciate that greatly. When a problem arises, they have someone directly in country that they can get in contact with to help troubleshoot. And that essence of authenticity, credibility, competence, and transparency can be elevated so much just by being physically proximate to where your customer is. And I think sometimes digital native financial services providers probably think that their economic benefit of staying in one location but having a product with global reach is going to be their secret source. But in fact, if you think about building long-standing relationships with customers, uh, putting yourselves where they are is probably a, an important investment to make early. Putting the, the customer at the centre of any growth strategy is is probably the most important thing. And understanding the local nuances super important as well because each geography is coming from a different start base, a different history, and in financial services, a different level of maturity. 
And so trust for cash in one economy might be really high versus another economy might be really low. And so you've got to bring all of those things into consideration, I guess, when you are launching a proposition in market. Yeah, I found it really interesting reading this Forrester survey saying things like that Chinese and Indian consumers have relatively high levels of trust in their banks. And yet we know that China is this epic location for fintech innovation. And yet people in Australia and Singapore do not trust their banks. Luke, how do you see these attitudes playing out within a global business? Yeah, look, obviously the bulk of my working experience and and being from Australia, I think in terms of my own cultural alignment to the sector is probably best informed there. And I mean, it's, it's no secret that we're operating in one of the most concentrated, competitive and profitable banking sectors in the world, right? And the average Australian's journey with the banks is probably one, frankly, underpinned by cynicism and obligation because it's their gateway to the Australian dream, you know. Get yourself enough of an economic base to burden yourself with enough debt to get the house of your dreams, right? And, you know, then you navigating all of the uh, lifestyle uh, constraints and complexity that comes with that. Meanwhile, every quarterly earnings announcement says you're contributing to one of the most profitable sectors in the world. I, I genuinely believe there is an, an element of, of cynicism and uh, to a certain extent, a question around incentives. Like we're engaging in the perpetuation of this traditional Australian dream narrative that is the complete bedrock of an incredibly profitable banking sector that doesn't really appear to be uh, reinvesting those resources back into the experience of customers. And I think that bias will be taking into our, our our platform operating in a business standpoint. Like you can't help but uh, take your own perception of the those operators in the sector into the way that you conduct yourself as a business. And I think that is particularly true of our origin story is largely weighted in assisting small and medium businesses to access global markets to get really economical rates on foreign exchange uh, and, you know, some core banking technology as well. Now, the platform has greatly expanded from there and thankfully we're now very enterprise relevant, very sophisticated technologically and we're serving some of the largest enterprises in the world. But, you know, if you ask SMBs, like, have they been able to get the time of day at the bank to help them build their business and, you know, help them achieve what they want to as an operation, they're not really getting a response. And so I think uh, in Australia particularly, the the banking sector has missed an opportunity to, with all the resources they have in abundance, reinvest that in the customer experience and start building a service, building products that are responsive to the needs of their customers. And uh, in a number of contexts that relates to business customers where they've been completely underserved up until recently and there just haven't been alternatives. And look, I think our observations of uh, adoption in some of the other markets you reference in the Asia-Pacific region, without speaking intimately, I, I do believe some of that framing of the foundational relationship that the consumer or the operator has with the bank will inform their level of trust moving forward and their rate of adoption for new technology as well. And I think a lot of the time that is as much attached to the service being offered and the problem being solved as it is who the logo is, who the bank is, right? Because if you're a licensed provider, you've been given the tick of the box by the regulator, 
and people have a decent experience with you as a consumer, it doesn't necessarily mean you're solving a problem for them as an operator. And I think that that lens and working backwards from the customer experience and the problem they're trying to solve has been a differentiator for us. And, you know, if customer adoption is a proxy for level of trust, then the Chinese Southeast Asian markets are some of the fastest growing markets for air wallets globally. And so there's certainly a compelling story emerging there. ANZ was one of the few Australian banks to succeed with moving into other markets. So are there any trust, are there any lessons on trust that you can talk about there, Joe? Yeah, just um, reflecting on what Luke was saying and, yes, putting my own lens of, of ANZ's experience. Interesting how, you know, we're talking about saturated markets, lots and lots of players, lots of commoditization of banking products, and yet the customers feel unserviced. So it's almost like a paradox, really, that you've kind of got so many players, so much commoditization of banking products, and yet customers don't feel like the banks or financial services providers actually know and understand them deeply enough for them to kind of warrant 100% adoption or, or whatever. So I think that's particularly prolific in some parts of Asia, like Singapore is is a great market where most people have 10 credit cards in their wallet. They're just shopping for loyalty or that kind of thing. So, so that's really tough. So it's really, really important to dig deep and understand what your points of differentiation are and how do you get close to your customer while kind of maintaining that cost to serve, you know, one to many type approach. And I think you can only do that through technology, but you have to do it really, really cleverly. And I think the other thing I would say about that is that I don't think you can have an incremental approach. So say you've kind of fallen behind relative to others. I don't think it's a matter of catching up that's going to see you win. I think you have to almost have like a 10x type approach. So how are you going to be way better than everybody else in in order to, to garner the benefits of being trusted? And the benefits are really huge. They, you know, they're more share of wallet, more revenue. You have better engagement, more advocacy. You get forgiveness if something does if something does go wrong, and and kind of you have brand uh, brand recognition and brand benefits that are attached to that. But the investment to get a ten x, especially for large players, it's really hard to justify because it's much easier to just kind of keep on that level of mediocrity or you know middle of the pack and be good enough. But I think the real benefits are actually when you kind of try and be an exemplar in the space. So we've talked a lot about trust here and a little bit about how fintechs like Airwallex and others are exploiting that. Joe, for fintechs generally, a lack of trust in banks is a good thing as it's a space that you can step into. But are you actually seeing that happen? Are fintechs filling the trust gap? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think uh, the stats would say that trust in fintechs uh, is actually lower than trust in banks, but, you know, perhaps the trajectory is going in a positive direction for fintechs and a negative direction for the banks, but it hasn't kind of uh, crossed the threshold yet. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done because fintechs, what they don't have is brand and legacy to to draw on. So they have to compensate for that in other ways. Uh, Obviously, they can do that 
with beautiful technology and an amazing experience. And a lot of fintechs do a great job at being radically transparent as well. And so there's kind of that's that's one element that helps engender trust. But I think probably the other thing that fintechs have to think about, and the good ones do this well, is that they they do it well beyond their product. So they're thinking about how do I innovate? What is the experience like for my employees? Because they're at barbecues on the weekends. They're, they're, you know, they're talking about the brand and the product and the service. How are leaders perceived in, in the marketplace? What are they talking, choosing to talk about in public forums and that kind of thing? You know, I spoke before about what your response is like, so how you conduct yourself. And that that extends more than the product as well. It probably extends to areas such as sustainability, like how are you supporting minority segments within your customer base? I think all of those things a fintech needs to get right to compensate for the lack of, you know, track record or history and really win trust that way and then kind of backfill, if you like, the the, the legacy component. And Airwallex is probably in a great position now. You jump that hurdle now, you've got scale, and, and so you've got some brand now that you can fall back on. I suppose it's a, it's a great use case. Yeah, and Luke, you had that really good point before about just having people on the ground that you can talk to. Mm-hmm. Now, Airwallex is moving into banking and financial services with a new yield a, a deposit account. So, In the jurisdictions that you operate in, where are consumers or businesses more likely to try new services and to leave their old bank and to actually have that trust in companies like yours where you look like you're offering a a really great product, but at the same time, it's brand new, never heard of you before. Where are they more likely to adopt, to trust? And where's a bit more challenging to get people to make that jump? Yeah, I think there's a, a diverse state of play depending on the region that we're looking at. And in terms of the customers that we've been able to bring on at Airworks as a starting point, you know, in Australia and in Southeast Asia, it's probably been largely in that SMB sort of space. We've seen real lot of momentum in large scale enterprise adoption in the US. And I think they have the benefit of having a huge pool of well capitalized digital native technology-oriented startups who would be attracted to a proposition like Airwallex put forward out of the game. So it's more so the question of, well, how are you changing the hearts and minds of your customers from some of these traditional providers? And I think, to be honest, there's generally a pretty good appetite for customers to adopt a specific product or service if it's solving a problem that is underserved or not being served at all by a traditional financial services provider. This yields launch for us is a really exciting one in that sense because we're offering incredibly competitive rates for triple A rated securities with no lock-in and no break fees. Like in terms of accessing that sort of rate on your your working capital, on your business money and having immediate access to it while having one of the best rates in the market. That is a service differentiation. And so I think having a compelling enough proposition is getting the attention of the customer as a starting point, and then it's on you to deliver. And so starting from the service level and what you're actually promising is, is great and it's a good starting point, but ultimately, you know, trust is built with customers from delivering on what you say you're going to deliver. And for the most part, I would say, while over 70% of Airwallex's customer base are using the platform in more than one way. So we have a really diverse 
array of software, financial products, and APIs that enable you to perform any of your financial or money management requirements in a global setting. So collections, management, now earning in treasury management, and then payouts and the, the technology to enable you to adopt that in any way you need to, including embedded into your own digital properties. And so do I necessarily think we have a significant hurdle getting customers on board for that one use case? Not really. If it's a truly differentiated use case, and frankly, a lot of the technology that we provide enables the consumption and production of financial products that isn't available in a traditional financial services setting. It's a different question from saying, are you going to go all in on a fintech versus still having a foot in the door of your traditional bank, whether that's a risk mitigation strategy, whether that is a product-related strategy for gaps that exist in the fintech sphere. But I also think the administrative tax of moving, people are scarred from that. And if you think that the experience of onboarding yourself with a fintech is the same as the last time you had to set up a bank account, particularly if you're trying to operate globally, like that's probably enough for people to not entertain it at all. Like I remember when I moved to the States with a Fortune 10 company, it was impossible for me to open a bank account. <laughs> think about that in a business scale and think about trying to do that remotely. Uh, that is the perception that we're combating with saying, hey, like this is a great proposition, but it feels too hard. Now, the other thing I think uh, people are a little bit perturbed by when it comes to their perception of fintech is that there are so many differentiated offers out there and so many that seemingly do one thin slice of a holistic financial offering. And they're used to, I can have a warm relationship with one bank and they're going to solve all my problems for me. And if there's anything on top of that, I'll find someone else. I mean, we're in a very fortunate position at Airwallex to now be you know, offering an incredibly holistic portfolio of services that uh, have decreased that service level gap to a traditional financial services provider, notably, particularly with the launch of Yield in Australia this week. And so I think once customers open themselves up to the idea that they are true alternatives that solve all of their problems, and frankly, one of the most understated benefits being that the ability to onboard yourself as a customer with a product like AOLX that is digitally focused, that is uh, trying to remove all the friction and inefficiency that traditional financial services has afforded you when you're trying to get started, that that is almost reason enough to to give it a go. And then one of my biggest areas of focus is, okay, as you you said, we have a platform, we have a great brand now, we have a, a really compelling product offering. I spend a lot of my time with customers who are already with us and pulsing, are we delivering? Are we actually delivering what we say we're going to deliver? Because I believe that is where the trust is really built. And that magnification effect that you're referring to is absolutely true. I think to Joe's point about like it's not enough to to operate sort of in the status quo and there needs to be a significant non-linear shift in the way that you go about things. That might be true, but at the end of the day, it's about the discipline. It's about every day coming up with a maniacal focus on the customer experience and making sure that you go back to that every single day. And that is that is the the mantra of the team that we're building here at Airworks. And I think that will yield as much for us, no pun intended, as any product launch that we come up with in the next couple of years. They're going to want to partner with us because of the experience they're having as a customer. Just going back a little bit and um, touching on that point you made about this perception of lots of fintechs offering one thing in the market. On Breaking Banks Asia, we talk, we, we've talked about this in an earlier episode about when does a fintech become a bank? And I guess the question is there is about 
perception. Do you want to be perceived as a main bank proposition or as a fintech with most of the products that a business needs? Now we'll take a short break. Are you tired of your business's money sitting idle in traditional banks earning minimal returns? Introducing Airwallex's groundbreaking new product, Yield. Picture this. More than double the expected rate of return compared to those big old-fashioned banks. Earn on your Australian and US dollar balances without having to find a foreign bank. Nobody else is offering that today. And do it all without minimum lock-up periods or term deposits. But that's not all. Airwallex is a lot more than Yield. Whether your business needs to accept online payments, send instant transfers, manage corporate expenses or more, Airwallex can help. Their platform takes the friction out of your financial operations. Visit airwallex.com.au and discover why businesses all over the world, like Qantas, Brex, Shine, Zero, and Afterpay, trust Airwallex. General advice for wholesale clients only. Read Airwallex Capital's Yield PDS. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. You guys are both customer experience people or deeply involved in this element of fintechs. I'll start with you, Joe. How do you build trust into software from the bottom up? And given our conversation about different cultural expectations of trust and what people want from their fintechs, how do you design a cross-border platform that caters to that, that caters to different values that people actually have? Good question. When you boil it down, I guess there's a few fundamental things, no matter where you're operating in the world, that as a new player, you have to overcome. So I spoke a little bit before about, you know, lack of brand. And so that fear of unknown, and we're dealing with money here. So, you know, putting one's money into a player that is unknown, I think that's one of the biggest areas that any fintech has to overcome. And then there's probably a couple of ones because of the sector that we operate in, in financial services, and particularly with what's happened over the last year or so with scandals and bank collapses in the US and that kind of thing. And so that actually infects the entire industry, whether you're an incumbent or a new player. So that that's that's really important. And then data, cyber, some of those breaches that we've seen, they're, they're all kind of aspects that if you're building from the ground up, it kind of informs the approach that you need to you need to take. And that is that you have to have your security practices and compliance built in. I'm a massive, massive advocate for designing it into the platform rather than what a lot of larger players do is they kind of overlay compliance and security over the top of their products and services. And that just adds friction to the process and it actually Uh, adds risk to the process as well because there's more chance of of things going wrong because an I hasn't been dotted or a T hasn't been crossed. Whereas if you're designing it into the technology, and I guess that's why I got involved in the RegTech Association so early, is because there is technology around to actually achieve all objectives, beautiful customer experience, a more secure and, and compliant offering and a technology offering. So So that's really, really important. You've got to have those foundations really strong. I have seen some fintechs who think that they can corner cut on security and compliance. You you don't get away with that for, for very long. If you've got 
ambitions to scale globally, that is putting you on very shaky grounds, very shaky footing, and actually will eventually crimp your ability to be able to optimally grow. So it's much better as the ultimate case study in in that particular example, aren't they? Yeah, right. So when you when your foundations are shaky, at some point, you know, the building's going to crumble down. <laughs> but designing it into the technology so it's efficient is really, really important. And then I think the way that you engage with your customers, there are things that you have to do. So if you're doing two, two-factor authentication, for example, is there an opportunity to um, to educate in the process. Why are you doing it? What's the tone of voice and the language and the way and the style that you actually talk to your customers? I think that's really, really important. And use your position as an industry expert and in your company is an industry kind of expert. How can you spread and share knowledge? And so the customer is feeling like this is not a one-sided transaction here. This is an equal footing. I've, here I've got an organisation who is who is interested in making sure that I'm making informed, well-crafted decisions. And then I guess bringing all of that together really touches on something I'm, I'm quite passionate about, which is customer-led design or human-centred design. And so using the principles of human-led design to design the outcomes for customers, the product that you actually get into market, and then the ongoing kind of touch points and feedback loops that you're getting from customers to make product improvements as well. So I think they're the types of things, I suppose, when you're building from ground up that that needs to be factored in. I would echo a lot of that sentiment, and I think particularly around not trivializing the sensitivity of being in the business of money movement. It's mm-hmm. it's one of the most sensitive industries you can operate in, especially as a new player and especially if you're talking about cross-border. Like a lot of our customers, it could be the first time they are transacting with an overseas supplier, an overseas customer. Like the last thing you want to do is create an experience for them that is uncertain, where they don't have uh, full transparency of what is actually happening to their funds and what that journey is going to look like. And, you know, we care deeply about that. And I think... It starts from your internal principles. As Joe said, we have a philosophy here that the quality of our internal tools will dictate the quality of our external tools. And so, you know, that as well as one of our core operating principles or values being champion craftsmanship, holding a really high bar for the efficacy of your products and and their ability to deliver is, you know, going to reinforce that trust factor with your customers. And I think, look, in, in this game, there's a healthy balance between the most seamless UX you've ever seen and ensuring that people feel like there is a level of governance and due diligence to the ability for money to get moved around and your account to be set up and all of the data and privacy um, requirements associated with that to be um, to be included. And, and so having that top of mind, and it sounds really first principles, right? But asking your customers. I spent a lot of time at Amazon, as you called out, and and they have an ethos of starting from the customer and working backwards. And that's actually how they start to design products, not how they go through the journey and they don't ship stuff and then ask for feedback. They literally start from what does the end game look like in the eyes of the customer and how do we work backwards from that in terms of how we design. And I guess the reason that I'm feeling uh, very much at home in a place like AirWallex is there's a, a very similar philosophy when it comes to how products are designed. And um, we 
not only actively solicit feedback from our customers on what their needs are and what gaps they see in our current service offering, whether that be compared to other players out there or just aspirationally what they would like to see in Airworks. And we even have some programs where we're inviting customers to partner with us and co-build. And that way, you know, they are tangibly involved in the net outcome of the design process. They're going to be incredibly invested in the success of the product and feel like that there is a two-way channel of communication to ensure that their needs are going to be built into the future roadmap. And at our scale, that, that's not easy for extremely large-scale organizations to do. I think the right intent can be there, though, to ensure that, that starting from the customer experience and working backwards rather than you know operating internally and expecting everything to, to land in the way that you would expect from a usability standpoint once it reaches the customer... And that probably enables us to capture a lot of the nuance that we need to deal with dealing with such a global and and cross-border customer base. And How do you as a company facilitate a customer co-build of a product? Can you talk talk a little bit about how you actually make that work? Yeah, it's it's a, a newly evolving space and obviously select customers are involved to have the right size and scale of operation to make it meaningful who have the right intent about what the use case is and ideally they're already familiar with and using airwallex and it's a great way for them to continue to build uh their their reach with us as a partner and you know we're lucky as we as we called out at the outset of this conversation we have a geographically dispersed field organization that exists to engage with and serve the needs of our customers and then leveraging that presence and putting that back into some level of central program management is actually it's actually not that uh, taxing an exercise. I think obviously not every single customer's very specific list of requirements are going to be built in, but if you can solve for you know the mission critical ones and perhaps more importantly identify where there are shared and obvious patterns between customers in different parts of the world in different operating models and jurisdictions, that's when you're going to know you're building a universally appealing product. And so those feedback loops for us are going to be incredibly important in the way we continue to design. It actually uncovers things that you didn't know were problems for customers as well. And I think when you do that really deep, either co-creation or really deep customer research to kind of understand the pains that, you know, they've got a job to be done, how painful is it to, to do that job? And how much gain do they get by using you as the facilitator to undertake that job for them? You can uncover a lot. In my in my last um, corporate role, I was running the insurance business at Latitude, which we were either going to reinvent it or divest it. We we did end up divesting it, but as part of the reinvention process, we did a huge amount of global customer analysis and just really trying to understand, I suppose, what customers were looking to achieve when they took out an insurance policy, what problems were they looking to solve. And we unpicked some really interesting insights like, well, there was a deep lack of trust for insurance companies. (laughs) So how do you overcome that? There was a bit of a lack of trust in the process. So you put me through the ringer, you get me to sign up to a a policy that is not in plain English and really hard to understand. And then when it comes to claim time, you put me through the ringer again, 
you don't understand. It's in my it's in my moment of highest stress um, because I'm, I'm making a claim because an event has happened, and uh, you don't know anything about me. You don't trust the paperwork. You you're not kind of thinking about my state of mind. All of those kind of things. Now, when you start with the customer, you can actually design a product that caters for those things first and then addresses the policy kind of second. And, and it's almost the reverse of how most financial um, services organisations think about product. And normally they create a smart product and then they overlay a CX or a UI overlay. I would argue that really understanding the customer will actually give you insights to to create that competitive advantage and to build that trust because you're thinking about things from their perspective, not from the provider's perspective. In some ways, this feels like a privilege that is accorded to startups. As you said earlier, Joe, about why would we spend 10x in order to win back trust when we could just continue on this flat plane of mediocrity? Luke, you've worked in startups. Milk Run was your most recent, a delivery startup that burned out as brightly as it shone. And Joe, you work with small companies now, I understand. How do you build trust in a new brand? Does it come down to reaching out to those customers right now and taking that time? Or is it a combination of things or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, Milk Run was an incredible brand. And I think irrespective of, of the journey and there was there was an exit. <laughs> it wasn't uh it wasn't the way that we wanted it to happen at the outset of the journey. But I mean, to this day, the, the brand is still so entrenched in really loyal customers who, despite the new owners and operators, they're they're still loyal. They've they've noted some change in the the way the service operates and their perception of it. But um Milk Run for know, our listeners was bought by one of the major supermarkets in Australia. Look, I think what Milk Run did incredibly well at the outset was create the brand and make it known, right, and have an identity attached to it. And so what you stand for as a brand and as a company, I think, is really important. And you need to invest in conveying that. That is a a renewed area of focus for us at AirWallex, where those who have a a really well-defined use case for the platform have found us and have leveraged us and, and, you know, adopted at scale. But the masses probably still aren't aware of who we are, intimately aware of what we do. And so, you know, really doubling down on that brand and awareness for us is going to be an important focus over the next couple of years, particularly as what should be a uh, a celebrated Australian startup story. And is to some extent, but probably not to the same extent as you would say some of the other unicorns that are born out of Australia have have been publicised. And the other is, I think it goes back to what I touched on earlier is there needs to be an incredible level of focus and investment on delivery. And that's no pun intended for the business model, but it's, are you establishing audits in place really early on that say, are we showing up and delivering what we say we're going to, whether that is in terms of the quality of the service, whether that in terms of in this context, the speed of the delivery. Um, I used to have audits in the business and core metrics that would be looking at how often are we hitting the estimated delivery time? If we're not, what are the contributing factors to that? Where we're not, are we directly outreaching to customers and making sure we're educating them on the context behind it, taking full responsibility for the outcome and ensuring they understand our intent for the path forward is that this isn't the status quo and that we're going to do better. 
And, you know, that is an extremely differentiated level of service to what you would have seen in the grocery sector in Australia up until then. And I think history will reflect on companies like Milkrun in the renewed level of focus on digitization, convenience and the service level in the uh, traditional retail sector as a result. Because uh, I think enough customers took notice such that the companies themselves took notice. And so um, that's going to be a long-standing legacy of the brand for sure. And I see a lot of adjacency uh, between that experience and what we're seeing here at Airwallex, where the same educational journey is before us with what is a completely untapped market. Like we, we have built a pretty formidable business, but if you think about the total addressable size of the prize here in Australia and how many more customers, particularly large-scale enterprise customers, are yet to to uh, benefit from a platform like Airwallex, there's, it's still day one. The dimension that is important there as well is that this, this isn't a point-in-time exercise to earn trust and then get on with your day job. The complacency in this area will end your brand if you don't have a healthy level of paranoia about how customers perceive you and whether you continue to deliver on the promise that you're giving them. And you know, I think that is a system of values that is very well entrenched to the way we're going about things here. I would agree with all of that, Luke, and probably just to reinforce your last point and the start of your question, Rachel, was that it's a privilege for fintechs to be thinking about customer-led design in this way. I would argue that that's not the case. It's actually just, it's the privilege from every participant in the financial sectors sector. It's just that fintechs weight more of their time and attention on it because they don't have the legacy to fall back on. And that's a real shame for the larger incumbents. And I think Airwallex's challenge is going to be now that they're getting scale and they're getting global reach is how how they continue to stay anchored. And it sounds like that you guys are investing a lot in making sure that that continues to happen. And so I say long, long may that continue because that will mean that you'll continue to stay strides ahead and you'll be able to push into new segments like the institutional type segment because of what you've built in the consumer and small business segment. So it's never one and done and doesn't matter how big and globally dominant you are, uh, there is always work to do because customers' sentiments are changing all of the time, all of the time. And so you have to have a really strong touch point and pulse point on that and, and be evolving your product and service accordingly. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. And yeah, that, that statement actually did strike, strike me. So I'm glad you revisited it in terms of this being a privilege afforded to startups. I've worked in companies that are worth trillions of dollars and have the same maniacal focus on customer experience. And I think it comes down to priority and the time horizons you're working towards and the environment where you will not make these nonlinear investments in customer experience and innovation are those where you are beholden to quarterly earnings announcements mm. uh, and shareholder reactions. Like people are joining companies like Airwallex because they want to build things that are going to outlast them. They have a truly long-term view about changing an industry and changing the way that businesses will be served by financial institutions and so you know optimizing for long-term value for us is is another starting point rather than thinking we need to tactically solve a problem for ourselves this quarter and then move on to something else thank you both so much joe and luke that is trust that always comes down to building in that governance delivery and that hyper maniacal focus i love that phrase luke into what you're doing from the very beginning. Thank you both so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Bags Asia. We'd like to thank our show sponsor, Airwallex. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.